to episode 343 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Andrew Swafford. Michael O'Malley. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we're going to kick off our short Patreon picks series with 1968's The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, which was picked for us by Ron Hayes. So, yeah, nice... Nice little adaptation of a book. Um, but first, let's go ahead and jump into uh, into movies that we saw this week. And um, honestly, excited to talk about this first one because it's the first time um, in our history that we're going to talk about a Steven Spielberg movie that Andrew liked. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. I don't think that I have ever been outwardly negative about steven spielberg have i can you think of a time i mean we we ragged on ready player one pretty hard which is fair i didn't see ready player one i'm a spielberg fan and i did did yeah yeah yeah, that's fair but anyway let's let's talk about the fablements um i caught this at tiff um so i'm going to turn it over to you all to uh because i wrote about it and talked about it on the podcast already so i'm going to turn it over to you all to talk a little bit about the fablements well, Michael, I want to hear Spielberg from the resident buff. Spielberg hater, Andrew. <laughs> Here's the thing. I'm not a resident Spielberg hater. He doesn't hate Spielberg. Uh, he's, he's, he's just all right, he's, he's very like agnostic to Spielberg. So I think the thing with me about Spielberg is that <sighs> there are a lot of like mega fans of Spielberg who consider him like one of the greatest formalists of all time. And like he is in a sense that he like almost in the same way that like um you could say that dw griffith is like like stead setting <laughs> what the uh, uh like the the cinematic language of a type of movie right also um, has some troubling uh movies regarding race not to the extent that DW <laughs> yeah griffith i don't know does. if he like that <laughs> level that would be offensive to say um but i've never like loved his movies right it just they are such like the template for what the studio blockbuster is that um, I've never personally connected to one in the way that I think a lot of people have. Um, But like, if you go down the list of the movies that he's really known for, I've seen and like to some extent, pretty much all of them uh, or all the, all the really big ones. Um, But this is the first time that I have really, really been moved by a Spielberg movie um it is um kind of going for a level of natural like social realism that i am not used to seeing from him um but it is also really thoughtfully considered in terms of the way that it is shot um so it's more like the 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 way in which we're kind of like sitting in the pace of life with these characters um in the same way that you would see like in boyhood or ladybird or um uh, oh, what's the other big one? Or eighth grade. Um, but it is shot with like this really classical formal eye that Spielberg has where like every um, every individual image and like angle that we are choosing to look at these characters from is generally communicating something about them and how we're supposed to be feeling. Like every cut feels like it matters. It is like chosen, like that, that moment is chosen for a reason. Um, there's a beautiful, beautiful sequence right in the middle of it um, that is completely wordless, and it's intercutting between um, Spiel, like young Spielberg looking through, scrubbing through a bunch of footage um, that he has taken, and his mom playing piano, 
and his dad listening to the piano and like uh, almost conducting along to it that is all like um perfectly like pieced together to like move with the music and also like culminates in this really emotional high at the end of the scene um so like it is it is an interesting fusion of like a type of movie i'm not used to seeing spielberg do and like that type of movie being infused with a very um like i don't know classical eye if that makes sense um but i'm curious to hear what you guys thought about it there's a lot more I think to say about it if we get into the details but um what are y'all's feelings i mean i thought it was really good it's it's i'm, I'm kind of with you andrew in the sense that i don't know that he's made a movie exactly like this before but the interesting thing is a lot of the component parts are like directly taken from other spielberg movies like ai plays like a huge role in like the kind of like visual language and like uh thematic stuff in this movie also like of course music by john williams um, the, uh, screenplay was co-written by, um, Tony Kushner as well as Steven Spielberg. And, you know, of course he's collaborated on Spielberg a number of times or with Spielberg a number of times. He's got the cinematographer that he's had for a while, um, working. Um, so like, I don't, it is sort of interesting in which like, it's like simultaneously like a different kind of Spielberg movie by, but also being like the most Spielberg movie in the sense of like the parts that it's assembled from. Um, and I think that's kind of interesting for a film that is like, at least purportedly, and I think it's kind of sneaky about this, its relationship to this, but it's like purportedly like semi-autobiographical. And I um, I think that's interesting that it's not just semi-autobiographical in the sense that Spielberg is going off his memories of his childhood, but it's also that he seems to be like pulling off of memories of his own career um, in evoking this movie. I think that's cool. And also calling into question how much we should take what we're seeing as like truly his childhood uh, yeah, because which, of the way the movie acknowledges <laughs> what movies do to like craft narratives and like tell people what they want you to think about them or etc. Um, yeah. This is like a wildly like for a movie that is kind of like been purportedly like, this is the movie that made Spielberg cry as he was making it. Like you're going to, it's a, it's about the joy of film or whatever it's like not not that but it's also like surprisingly agnostic about the power of film like the potential of film to manipulate reality and it like at certain points seems kind of unsettled by that um like for instance there's a key scene uh in the middle of the film in which it's the same scene that you were talking about andrew um in which like um the act of having filmed something like makes uh, uh, like young man, I forget what the Steven Spielberg character's name is. Supposed Sam. To be. Sam. Sam. Yeah, it makes young Sam's life like a lot m- less pleasant. Like the act of having filmed it, re reinf- like like realizes something that was true, but it gives it it embodies it in a way that is very unpleasant for him. And that is like that happens later in the movie with another character. Like he um, makes a a school like a film for his school. And one of the guys who gets depicted in the film is really unsettled by the way he was depicted uh, for kind of the opposite reason where he felt like the film depicted him in a way that was almost like glorifying him. And he knew that like he would never live up to that image of people. And so he was like that people saw of him. And so the film kind of doomed him to never be as good as people remembered him being. Um, And that's just like really interesting and thorny, especially when you consider like Spielberg 
as a like the thing people will say about Spielberg is like, oh, besides just like the architect of the modern blockbuster, the stuff that you already said, Andrew, is like his sentimentality and his or or if you're like negative about it, like his ability to be a manipulative filmmaker. Right. right. Which Absolutely. I've always thought is redundant because all film is is manipulative in some respects. But I think Spielberg has always been fairly shameless about it in his career, like and not willing to like hide behind like, you know, quote unquote realism or, or whatever, like, you know, a, a more high minded filmmaker might might I do. Think it it and, talks about the manipulation of film in a way that is simultaneously looking at that in a positive and a negative light, right? Like part of what is cool to Spielberg about making movies when he's like very young and in this movie is that he gets to find ways to move an audience, right? Like he finds ways to make them laugh. He finds ways to shock them um, as like a, almost as like a gift, you know, like I'm giving you joy. Um but then it is also acknowledging the fact that like those things are always artificial constructions and you can't ever like truly uh, present the truth on them. So you're always going to get like this very skewed, um, like one person singular vision of, um, you know, whatever the subject matter is. Yeah. And more so than, or in, in, in addition to that, like, there's this persistent thread through the film that the reason why Sam, and I guess by extension, like we're supposed to assume Spielberg, like one is so compelled by film is because it gives him an opportunity to control reality. Like there's the very first sequence in the film is them seeing the greatest show on earth, which is a thoroughly mediocre movie, but I think is like <laughs> funny. It, it, it has this sort of thing, kind of like the, the bill, like the movie billboards and like once upon a time in Hollywood, which are all these like really B tier, like Hollywood films from the sixties. Like, where it shows like the subjectivity of in a moment, like what cinema can do, even if it's not a conventionally great movie. Um, but like the thing that strikes like Sam, who like, this is his first movie he's seen in a theater and he's like gripped by this scene that involves a, a train crash. And um, his parents kind of misinterpret this at first and thinking that he's really interested in trains. And so they give him a model train for his birthday or Hanukkah or for some, some gift giving occasion. And he uh, is repeatedly crashing this train and they're getting upset because um, this is, you know, you're going to break your toy. Um, but then they give him a camera and what he starts doing is filming, crashing the train over and over again. And like, it's kind of a way, it's a little bit on the nose in the movie, but it's a way of him, like his parents realize it's a way of him controlling his fear of like having seen that, right? The ability to film it and recreate it shows that you can, um, you can create that yourself. And that is like a power to like deal with unpleasantness in, in reality is to be able to recreate it in film because that shows that you have mastery over it in some way. And I think that like the film acknowledges that as like something that's very powerful and uh, like can be like really rewarding, but is also, it, there's like some really troubling undercurrents to that as well. Um, like I saw a letterbox user say this, and I think that they're right. Like the, the school film that he makes like quotes, um, quotes, Nazi propaganda. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure it's meant so to it's, like, it's, I was it's unclear very, on that. No, it, well, I don't know if it quotes it, but, but it's, it's evocative it's, of it. Yeah. I mean, no, it's, it's the style is completely taken from Lenny Riefenstahl, especially her, uh, her Olympic film that she right, made. Exactly. And, and I mean, because, that's... The, because the beginning of that is like a bunch of pretty naked men, like 
running around, uh, you know, just kind of glowing like these Adonis type figures. And that's how he shows this this guy in it. Yeah. And I mean, that again, like there, there's a few connections, not maybe quite so dark as that. But throughout the film, we're like the ability to like this desire to control things is is almost portrayed as like. There's something very troubling about that. There's another scene where um, right after his parents have told them that they're going to get divorced, like he goes and is editing a film and his sister is coming in. She's like, I, I can't remember the exact conversation, but his sister is basically like, aren't you going to deal with this? Like, we got to talk about this. And he's like, no, I'm just editing my film. Right. And like, again, like there's this kind of like almost antisocial. I don't know, like. I don't know if pathologic pathologic is too too strong, but yeah, not not just antisocial, but like there's a there's a way in which the film complicates the the gift of filmmaking to make it not not quite like always like the sunny thing. It's like something that has great great potential for like both good as well as like maybe more uh, kind of insidious things i don't know i think that's really well, interesting that's, well that's 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 unlocked in his whole the whole interaction the scene with um judd hirsch who plays his uncle um and just that that whole conversation that he has with him where he's just you know he's just describing that um himself and sam's mother and sam are all um you know they're artists and so they're having to fight like you know fa- that you know you have family and friends and all this stuff but and you love them but you love you love the camera and what that does a little bit more and that's what do, that's what separates you do we know much about um spielberg's current like marriage family situation i don't uh, know he's married it. to uh shoot what's her name from uh temple of doom oh really mm-hmm. oh okay cool um, i think Oh, because of that scene with the uncle where he goes on about how, how you have to choose between family or art. Um, if this was Spielberg making like a very personal confessional movie, I was wondering if he like felt some sense of guilt that he had been distant from his own family or if this is just a stuff in my past with my parents. Well, he uh, did. Kind of so he had a. Yeah, he had a he had a first wife um, who I think that might have dissipated because of the relationship he and Kate Capshaw uh, had while making Temple of Doom. Um, so it's not an entirely thorny love life, but um, <laughs> he's been with her since like 1991. So oh, okay. <laughs> also, but, no, we should, sorry, go ahead, Zach. No, you're fine. Go. I was just going to say we should acknowledge though, maybe not spoil just how amazing the cameo at the end of this movie oh, is. Oh, I could watch that every day. <laughs> <laughs> I wanna... Yeah. I could watch that every every day. Like it's like I was sitting there, I I remember I remember when I saw it at Tiff and I like was like, holy shit, this is incredible. <laughs> and then like I knew it was coming when I rewatched it earlier this week and I was like giddy excited knowing that it was coming up. And just the whole like the way from the minute the guy enters the room to the very end with like the the sunset, I'm just like, this is fucking great. Oh, I it love is every like second an amazing of this. Like, five minutes final, of the movie. Five minutes. Yeah. Just I, perfect. I think I expected going into this movie for it to be a little more like that, um, where there is 
a famous real life person being portrayed on the screen. Like I, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like I thought it was gonna go further into his career. Yeah, I think yeah. I thought a little bit of that. I, th- I guess I thought there would be more allusions to like famous folks, but there's really not that many. Um, there's like a very very small handful of uh, not even a handful of them. Like only a few, um, which I think is kind of cool. Like there's something like very. Um, I don't know, like Spielberg's dad, for instance, is like a big enough guy that he's got his own Wikipedia page for his like, you know, contributions to um, like electrical engineering and computer science and stuff like. And you would imagine that there would be a lot of like there could be the possibility for a lot of name dropping, you know, with that sort of with those sort of connections. And there's like basically none of that. Um, There's like a few a few things, but like, you know, not there's not a lot. And like I. I think that the film is like impressive for as big and as like purportedly personal as it is. Like it is impressively focused on it, like basically exclusively on the role of filmmaking in like Sam's life and how like every event that is depicted in the the film is affected by his interest in filmmaking um, or how every event in his life affects um, his filmmaking. Like it's really there's really not like a scene that I can think of that doesn't have some connection there. Um, and so I think in a way, like it's a lot less, um, it's a lot less of an indulgent film than like you might expect, uh, from like a film that is like auto, you know, supposed to be like this kind of autobiographical, like late career treatise on like his own career. Um, well, especially those movies that are like kind of like the this is why I make movies. Like you know, you think of those. Like I saw the trailer before this one for the Sam Mendes one, and I'm like, that looks that just looks dreadful. Um, and just a lot of movies like that that are like like you say they're very self indulgent. It's you know, it's kind of showing off you know the movies that inspired them and and kind of name dropping and things like that. And this one, like you said before, like this one is really interrogating not only his style but like how he views movies like the second time watching it i really drilled down on the commentary that it's making on the manipulation and just how manipulating film can be you know you mentioned the scene with the with the high school bully at the end and he breaks down pretty much because he's just like you made me look like somebody who i'm not like one of I the lo- most incredible scenes in that movie honestly like it's, i was on the really, seat, like edge of my seat watching that that moment it's really good because he's just like you made me like literally you made me into a superhero pretty much and i'm not that i'm just a normal stupid guy who will probably get some basic job and have a wife and kids and just have a basic life and you made me look like <clears throat> a greek god for five minutes on screen and you're like yeah that's what that's what movies do you think of um you know it made me think of uh of like the entrance that you get from john uh john wayne in stagecoach where he just like rides up on that horse and he's just like this adonis and you're just like holy shit like this is this is insane um and and things like that like like, i like to me that's that's really getting to the meat also of like commentating on his own movies because it's like yeah movies are these um are these machines to to manipulate and you know whether it's it's what you're seeing and kind of what you're perceiving but also like we talked about earlier it manipulates in how you know there can be truth found in in stuff that you shot in you know you can edit around it but that truth still holds because it was filmed i want to also 
I don't know how much time we want to spend on this movie, but I also want to like just like shout out Paul Dano and Michelle Williams are like both like excellent as his parents, and also their roles are like impressively tied into like this kind of like psychological battle in him because his dad is like an engineer, um, and his mom uh, is is like an artist, right? Uh, she, like a musician, um, and the kind of like the way that they form the kind of battling. Um, uh, like forces of his own psyche as he starts approaching like filmmaking is like really impressive and it's impressive like I think not just because it's cool thematically but it's able to do those things thematically while also not really making them feel like just like like a Freudian symbols in the film like they actually feel like real people even though like their role in the film is kind of schematic in the sense of like the dad is always on the like the you know this this brain type, and then the mom is always this brain type, and it's hard to make those meet. Speaking um, of watching this movie a second time, it, it is so true what you're saying because the first time you watch it through, it does feel so naturalistic, and these do feel like such real live people who like could have actually been Spielberg's parents, like they're that multi-dimensional and flawed and stuff. Um, but watching it the second time through almost every single one of their like dialogue pieces in their scenes or like the role they're playing in the scene is to pull the kid in like one of those two like symbolic directions. Like in the very first scene when you, we see um, the kid, kid Spielberg in line to see the greatest show on earth, he's scared about how big the people are going to look on screen. And his dad tries to comfort him by, <laughs> like intricately explaining the science of how film works <laughs> to a child who does not understand anything and michelle williams yeah. says movies are dreams you know like and, and i was tracing it from that point on like wow this is really like written um you, you think of like this there's the scene um like midway through the movie when they're on the camping trip and like michelle williams and seth rogan are like are like yes. bending a tree and and paul dano's over there like explaining the science between but like of how you create fire <laughs> yeah. to make it light and like <laughs> the scene is blocked so amazingly too because he's on the left like exactly in the left half of the frame she and uh, uh seth rogan are exactly in the right half of the frame and you see all the kids on the left until like the their attention gets distracted over there and it's like a wes anderson film that's like go over to the next panel um yeah. incredibly really cool <laughs> uh can we I'll... also acknowledge oh sorry michael did you have something else no, go ahead i was gonna say can we also acknowledge how the scenes in this movie are so well constructed as like full scenes. Um, like you were talking about the, how great the scene with the bully is, but there's so many uh, scenes that like have, are that memorable to me throughout the movie because we are like, they're living it for such a long time in most cases. Um, the camping, the, all the camping scenes are great, especially the mm-hmm. one where Michelle Williams is like dancing in the headlights. There's a yeah. long scene where, she's like she's like drunk right and she starts just dancing in the headlights and then he starts filming it and i don't know there's it's and then the daughter is like unsettled by it um i don't yeah. know it's, it's really well, and, that, and, that, and that but that also gets into just like that um not perversion but just like what the movies can do like you think about 
Seth Rogen, Paul Dano, and Sam are sitting there watching her. Sam's recording, and like the the, the daughter, reckon, there's something wrong about this. She has like a nightgown on. You can kind of see through it. Like she's drunk. Like she, you know, they're just sitting there staring at her, and she kind of is like, "There's something wrong about this." But behind the lens of a camera, it's just this like beautiful, uh, like ethereal moment, um, and that's that's just kind of fascinating. Among my favorite scenes is the scene um, where he uh, is attempted to be converted to Christianity oh my gosh. by his high school girlfriend. <laughs> I love Jesus, and what is Jesus but a nice, cute little Jewish boy? <laughs> Come into me, Jesus. Uh, yeah. <laughs> incredible. The audacity of this man to film that scene. <laughs> I like I like that he just had that scene in there, and it's just like a nice little comic break. It's yeah. just like, what if we were silly for a Fantastic. while? Um, well, if you would like to see the Fablemans, please try to go as soon as possible. It's in theaters, but we'll probably get sucked out soon. If I have not one last thing to say because uh, Andrew oh. um, started this by saying like Spielberg is like the architect of like a certain kind of blockbuster, and that's certainly true. But I kind of think like one of the interesting things about Spielberg right now is that moment is kind of past. Like the movies don't really feel like that they're influenced by Spielberg anymore. And in fact, like the last few Spielberg movies have kind of underperformed at the box office. Like Fablemans isn't doing amazing money. It's a West bummer too because that movie slaps. Flop. Well, I uh, think the definition of what, what a, what a blockbuster should look like to a modern audience has shifted and he's not yeah, making exactly. Which movies. I think is interesting because now he's, he's like sitting here, like almost like Chaplin at the end of his career or something like that, where like the specific like set of skills and like, uh, like, uh, affects that he cultivated and like shaped, he shaped the industry around that, um, that the moment of that is passing him by. Um, and like his films are becoming increasingly insular, even when they're not in- intended to be so like, like West side story. Um, like every frame of that movie is meant to be like, dang it. I want the full movie house, like cheering along with this mm-hmm. movie, but it kind of, it's, it it's good. Like, you know, this isn't like a, you know, downgrading the quality of the movies that he's making, but like the ways in which he used to be able to attract audiences, like, like people freaking came out to always, um, or, uh, or like color purple or like, you know, movies that are really flawed early in his career. Um, but like, you know, he's making these like, you know, really competent, well-made movies that in another era would have been like or Amistad or something like that. Like in but another the era would have been is that the movies do not have Spider-Man in them. And because the movies don't have Spider-Man in them, I do not want to see them. Well, right. I mean, this is like the I mean, I'm not saying that like this is the same thing, but like every artist or every director, every person who stays in an industry long enough will find that industry change out from under them. Um like uh you know all like that that shift where like a bunch of the old like musical people are all of a sudden like you know out of work or whatever because the studio musical ceases to exist in the way that it did at one point you know um i don't know it's just well, kind of interesting if you remember if you in bridge of spies like the prisoner that they trade is spider-man <laughs> like <laughs> i never saw bridge of spies i would really it's like good. to watch well, it it's yeah. very, it's super good. And the prisoner, it's like, he just like comes out of there and everybody's like, ah, and he's like, pew, 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 I mean, yeah. it's two Spider-Mans <laughs> looking at each other. 
Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, one's the communist Spider-Man and one's the capitalist Spider-Man. <laughs> oh, man. It's a real political commentary. Spider-Man. He's fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Fablemans, it's in theaters now. It is, <clears throat> it's uh, distributed by Universal, so I would assume it'll be on... Um, they usually have been putting their stuff on Peacock. <laughs> which is universal so uh it'll be streaming if you miss it in the theater but go see it in the theater it's worth it's it's a it's one of those big screen movies y'all you should see it on a big screen yeah yeah um moving on to a small screen movie i guess because it's only on netflix <laughs> it, was, it made a short theatrical run oh uh, okay um not but that is people. that is uh, guillermo del toro's pinocchio um, this is uh, what I believe is a has been a passion project for Guillermo del Toro. Has been one he's been wanting to make forever. It's uh, his is it his first for, it's his first stop motion movie, correct? Yeah, first animated yeah. in general, I believe. Yeah, which seems like a very natural like coming together. Um, but this one, it's it's it is the story of Pinocchio. This one is told. Um, in the uh in the like the shadow of the rise of fascism and benito mussolini in italy <laughs> that is so funny um, to me man like just hearing it's it's guillermo toro's pinocchio we took pinocchio and said it during the rise of fascism <laughs> well it's just like yeah i mean like he's got to have that in there this is like a through line through so many of his movies is like he's got to throw fascism in there and just like show us how much he hates fascism which i appreciate i do really I, like we need it we need yeah, a GDT. It's it's Zach and I can talk about this in a minute, I guess. But I, I feel like there are movies in which that works really well. There are movies in which it feels like a kind of odd fit. I don't think it works in uh, Shape of Water at all. Um, Michael, what did you what did you make of Pinocchio? I thought it was good. I thought it was really good. Um, the animation craft is just. Uh, top notch and I, I i feel like i should point out this is technically co-directed um and the co-director is the animation guy uh mark gustafson that's how um, they uh credited anomalisa charlie kaufman and the, the stop motion dude he was working with oh is that the same guy no no no, no. i'm just talking about like the the i guess the naming convention of who the movie is by yeah and i mean like i don't want to downplay del toro's involvement because like everything about the look of this movie screams like all of the visual things he's tried to do throughout his career. Like Pinocchio is this like weird spindly guy. And there's like visibly like still like twigs on him and stuff. Like, like he, like everything, like you can tell Del Toro had a hand in this. I'm not saying that like he didn't do anything, but there is technically another director who I imagine did a lot of the technical heavy lifting with, uh, with the animation. Um, but it looks amazing and it's really gross and icky looking too, um, which is perfect for like a Pinocchio movie. Like, I feel like I said this on Letterboxd, but like I read the book Pinocchio, like the the Italian book, which is like an Italian children's book from like the eighteen eighties. I read that when I was a young child, and after having like loved like the Disney Pinocchio when I was even younger, and that book is bizarre. Like, it is so strange and unsettling and just kind of gross. Um, and this is the first Pinocchio movie I've seen that like gets that like weird grimy like folktale feel of Pinocchio really down. Um, it's just got some like for instance the whale like you gotta have him swallowed by the whale at the end, but the whale is so disgusting in this movie. Um, the whale it's not even like a whale. Is it a whale? It's like yeah, this, I'm not even sure what it is. It's like this weird demented fish thing. 
Yeah, but it's very gross. And like all the characters, because they're stop motion, and this is not like this is not like a like a stop motion in the sense of like everything feels like diorama like this is more like on the uh henry selick end of things where things kind of feel like ramshackle and like intentionally look impossible um and just grotesque looking like um geppetto uh his he has a beard and his beard is like carved into his face like it's not like a separate thing from his face and so he's geppetto himself looks very wooden and his beard is just like this this elaborate wood carving down his chest. Um, and like, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other characters, um, but a lot of them, are, like the, the cricket, um, for instance, which doesn't, I don't think get a name in this. Does he get a name in this movie? It's Sebastian J. Cricket. Oh gosh. Uh, by <laughs> you, voiced by Ewan McGregor, by the way. Um, he's like, he, he kind of looks like he stepped off of James and the Giant Peach. It's like that level of bug craft. Um, and I, I just loved like all of that stuff. It's just so perfect for the kind of story that. Oh, Pinocchio the um, is. the 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 wood spirit and um, death. The Tilda Swinton yeah, yeah. The characters Tilda Swinton voiced. Um, they looked fantastic. They kind of reminded me of um, Kubo and the Two Strings, the Leica movie. Yeah. Just in terms of like the these kind of celestial wooden figures. Yeah, kind of the fun thing I had not seen in a Pinocchio movie before. I don't think it's in the original story, but like Pinocchio is a, he's doing a whole like, um, what's the Tom Cruise movie where you can die a bunch of times? Um, um, edge of Tomorrow. Edge of tomorrow. He's got Edge of Tomorrow thing where, uh, because Pinocchio is, his spirit is not tied to like a corporeal thing. Like, uh, he gets to like reanimate the puppet all these different times because he'll just die and then get booted out to like the, the nether world where this death spirit is there. And then and she all sets these, a little... uh, and all these rabbits are playing cards with, with each other. That's fun too. Yeah. And they become pallbearers too. And a spirit goes, um, goes... all voiced by Tim Blake Nelson, which yeah. I thought was a fun thing. <laughs> the voice ca- Let's talk about the voice cast real quick because it is insane. Um, it is. Yeah. So like, Let me just, let me look. So yeah, you got Ewan McGregor as the cricket, David Bradley as Geppetto. Um, Christoph Waltz Pino- is um, Christoph Waltz, like the a bad guy. Master. Yeah, Tilda Swinton plays these two, like the wood sprite and the death spirit. Ron, Ron Perlman, Perlman plays, plays a fascist, plays, uh, like yeah, general pl- guy. <laughs> yeah, you get Kate Blanchett who's just a monkey. Also, no you're talking about line. SpongeBob. Yeah, then Tom Kenny is uh, Mussolini. Yes, Mussolini shows up for just like a handful of lines. Um, but anyway, and it's almost like Tom Kenny doing like a really bad offensive Italian accent. He's just kind of <laughs> like, "What are these puppets are doing over here?" <laughs> yeah, no one gets the like Super Mario Brothers Italian accent except Benito Mussolini, they which should, is amazing. They should have had Tom Kenny play Mario in this Mario movie instead for of real. Chris Pratt. Dude, that's a like, great he's... idea. Yeah. Uh, anyway. But anyway um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah, like, um, they have Pinocchio die a bunch of times in this movie, and he keeps reanimating uh, this the puppet because um, that's what he's allowed to do because of some magical rules. I don't really get it. But um, that also makes this movie, like, surprisingly, like, macabre um, because, like, Pinocchio will get his legs burned off, and then uh, he'll just, like, reanimate this puppet again, and they build he new legs. He gets shot at one point. Yeah, he gets shot. He gets freaking, like, um, doesn't he drown or something? I don't know. There's... But I don't, by the end, like it, it's this weird, like a uh, moving thing because the entire 
movie, like like all Pinocchio stories, is Pinocchio's quest to be a real boy. Um, it's less Pinocchio's quest in this movie and more Geppetto's quest because Geppetto's son dies in World War I because of this like fluke bombing that happens in a church. Um, there's a bunch of religious imagery in this movie too. Um, and so Geppetto like becomes this like, like crazed with grief and that's when he builds the puppet because he wants another son. Um, and then like he manages to sum- summon Tilda Swinton's magical creature and she uh, you know turns the puppet alive, but the puppet's not a real boy um, until the end of the movie when like he's granted mortality like he's no longer immortal but he is granted mortality and that's what makes him a real boy and like it's kind of this moving like closing the circuit on like geppetto's grief thing where like the geppetto the the humanity of geppetto's son is like most thoroughly uh, exhibited by the fact that geppetto's son has died um and like pinocchio as a boy like a puppet has to come to grips with that and like I don't know, like the, I I I found that like weird, like oddly moving, for a movie that's not particularly the moving the good. whole time. I know, as, as somebody who like I mentioned off mic, like I wasn't super. There are moments like you're describing in the script that are pretty good. Um, I think a lot of these, some of the stuff just kind of gets silly because it just kind of starts turning its wheels and really doesn't have much to say. Honestly, a lot of the fascism stuff doesn't, at least in it's my opinion, doesn't fit. really go anywhere. I it doesn't like, really go anywhere. I do um, like that all the ways that Pinocchio is naughty, you know, because like the the usual tension of Pinocchio's story is he's supposed to do one thing, but he's being tempted to do another thing. All of his temptations are putting him closer in proximity to the fascism, which I think is that's the part that works. The rest of it doesn't really, including the Muslim yeah. scene, unfortunately. Yeah, um, but no, I think the ending works real well. Um, I think the ending's pretty effective, um, and that kind of got me. I, I, I think I gotta watch this again. I, I just wasn't really landing with it. Um, I, I mean, I agree with you in terms of the craft. It's insane. It's incredible. Um, just watching the pieces, but um, we haven't mentioned it yet. But there are, are a lot of musical numbers in this. Completely, they're not on the musical numbers. Like, yeah, they're not good for me. Is it, They're not good. Is it just the songs are bad? Yeah. Oh, yeah. man. That's They're such a not, bummer. not good tunes. GDT, you got a lot of skills. I don't think writing songs is one of them. How many songs are the in music? the original Pinocchio? I don't know. I know When You Wish Upon a Star is in there. Is, are there other songs? Yeah, there's a handful even, of songs in the They didn't uh, even Disney sing World. Wish Upon a Star. I think, is, that, is that in Pinocchio or is that just in Disney's no, Pinocchio? I'm asking Pinocchio. about Pinocchio. Uh, Jimmy oh, okay. Cricket sings it at yeah. the beginning. Speaking of um, Disney's no. Pinocchio, though, I think it is a baller move that Del Toro's Pinocchio came out the same year as the shitty Disney live-action Pinocchio. I feel like <laughs> it's like a happy coincidence driven by Disney being shitty because, like, yeah. surely this movie was in production before the live-action remake Pinocchio. Oh, for sure, yeah. Uh, just because of how long you have to take on stop-motion and stuff. And apparently Del Toro's been gestating this movie for a long time. Uh I haven't seen the live action remake, but like, I can't imagine it being anything but like the polar opposite of what this is. 
Yeah, it's well. At, at one point, uh, something shits in the street, and and Pinocchio gra- touches the shit. So you know, it's real. The it's real height of entertainment. I can't imagine that happening in Del Toro's Pinocchio, though. To be honest, wait, did you see the live action Pinocchio? Is that no? Somebody uh, just said, "Look at this clip of Pinocchio grabbing shit in the <laughs> Disney movie," <laughs> and put it on like Twitter or Instagram or something. Um, no, it's um, I don't know. I think I think it's worth watching. It's but I mean, uh, like I like I don't like giving Netflix credit for anything really because they're a st- stupid, you know, company. Um, but we'll give them props this year for putting out another both fucking this animated and, movie that's interesting. Well, the, between this and Wendell and Wild, like really really intricate stop motion movies too. that the are house stop motion in the house. Movies. I feel yeah, like there like were others the, that people liked as well. I've not kept up so with like. Them. Yes, yeah, so like flawed, shout out, but like Netflix is like consistently well, putting out interesting animated movies. Oh, there was well, the other ones that I've seen is year, uh, people liked that. Which one? Klaus. I think it's a few years ago. Yeah, and this year there was the one uh, I've seen a lot of people talk about the the Sea Beast. Oh, that was something I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah, I haven't seen that, but they put out the uh, new Cartoon Saloon movie. Um, oh, is that there, on Netflix? Was, yeah, it's on Netflix. It's good, not great. So I mean, like, I like at least on that front, I'll give it to him that you know, there's not other. What other distribution company is going to be putting out a Henry Selleck movie and a Guillermo del Toro stop motion animated movie? So I hope I hope it's well watched, so they'll continue to do it. Yeah, go watch it, Andrew. You might tip the scales. I would like to see it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. All right, we're gonna take a quick break, and then we're going to. Uh, walk around a small southern town and try to help people after this break. Part two of episode 343 of Cinematary. In this part, we're going to be doing our Patreon pick series with 1968's The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, directed by Robert Ellis Miller from a script by Thomas C. Ryan. The film stars Alan Arkin, Sandra Locke, Stacey Keach, Percy Rodriguez, and Cic- uh, Cicely Tyson. In this adaptation of the Carson McCullers novel, John Singer, who is deaf and mute, tries to help the people around him. He rents a bedroom in a small southern town to be closer to his friend uh, Spiros, who is also deaf. John attempts to strike up a friendship with Mick, the teenage daughter of his disabled landlord, and meets the town drunk. Later, he helps Dr. Copeland confront his failing health. 
1950 documentary producers William and Helen Levitt, Sidney Myers, and, G- uh, and Giannis Loeb were embarking on their first 35mm theatrical feature, an adaptation of the McCullers novel, a critically acclaimed best-selling book uh, in 1940. The four were, quote, currently dickering for outside financing, end quote, for what they estimated to be $200,000 for the film. Eleven years later, stage director uh, Jose Quintero hoped to shoot The Heart is a Lonely Hunter as a low-budget independent film from a script by British screenwriter Gavin Lambert. Quintero wanted to film in the South and expressed interest in hiring actors Paul Schofield, Zero Mostel, and Montgomery Clift. Two years later, the New York Times reported that producer David Suskind had taken over the project but had a new screenplay by Thomas C. Ryan. Suskind planned to shoot the film in New York City with director Sidney Lumet and said that Zira Mostel and Montgomery Clift were still interested, as was Peter Falk, who flew to New York to discuss one of the roles with Lumet. Clift, as John Singer, was the linchpin of the production, but because of his erratic behavior and bad health, no insurance company would cover him. Several months later, independent producer Eli Landau optioned the picture, the project as part of a three-picture deal with Sidney Lumet, and shooting was initially set to begin in New York City on September 16, 1963. Warren Beatty was tentatively set to star, but the project was held up indefinitely and nothing came of those. Four years later, uh, the February 8, 1967 issue of Variety announced that television producer Mark Merson's Brownstone Productions had taken over the filming rights, the film rights uh, to The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, with the intention of shooting Thomas C. Ryan's original script, with uh, Ryan co-producing. Filming would begin in Georgia in September 1967, and New York stage actor Alan Arkin, who was suddenly hot because of his comic role in the popular The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, was set to play John Singer. Ryan told the New York Times he wrote the screenplay five years earlier, but, quote, deeply believed in the novel long before that. McCullough's story, quote, is a thing of beauty and truth, and we hope to capture this in the film, he said. Uh, Alan Arkin was also an admirer of the book and, quote, jumped at the chance to play Singer. The company moved the production from Georgia to Selma, Alabama, a town of 28,000 people in in turn-of-the-century neighborhoods that had not changed much over the years. Selma was notorious for its Bloody Sunday during the Deep South's voting rights movement in 1965, when county deputies and state troopers attacked African-American marchers with tear gas and clubs. Selma Mayor Joe Smitherman told Variety that his, quote, peaceful law-abiding community Uh, expected no difficulties with the production's, quote, racially mixed cast because everyone was welcome in Selma and would be, quote, treated fairly within the law. He took the opportunity to compare Selma, quote, the safest place to be, with cities in the north where, quote, you all are burning up the place up there. Uh, Referring to several recent... He was probably cool because he knew that they wouldn't be voting. Yeah. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Referring to uh, several recent race riots. Smitherman convinced the Selma Chamber of Commerce to embrace the film production because of its economic benefits. He also stressed that the, that the film would be, quote, a publicity advantage to a town known nationally for its segregationist uh, uh, violence. Furthermore, the Depression-era story had, quote, nothing to do with a civil rights story as such. Um, Sandra Locke, then known as Sandra Locke, was a 23-year-old WSMTV staff employee when she auditioned for the role of Mick uh, to seem younger, Locke shaved six years off her age, a lie she maintained for the rest of her career. Although she was outed by the Billings Gazette and the Nashville Tennessean, it took decades for syndicated publications to catch on. Um, 
spoiler alert, this is a, a deeply questionable uh, review uh, from the New York Times, but I'm going to read it because I just kind of want it in the ether. I think I've read this. <laughs> the Heart yeah. is a Lonely Hunter is an interesting example of how very difficult it must be for the arts when there is an... Am- there is an immense political awareness in the air. So much in Carson McCullers' early novel of Singer, the deaf mute whose silence becomes an expression and a magnet of all the lonely, life-impaired whites and Negroes in a southern town had to be updated and changed. And still still one keeps scrutinizing the movie, almost hostily, for where it politically stands. It is not just that we know that no southern Negroes quite sp- speak quite the way Miss McCullers' Portia, the Balula, uh, Bula, Aunt Jemima talking daughter of a proud Negro doctor spoke with all her I were's and they haves and other exaggerated unpoetic failures of speech by which Miss McCullers signaled in every line just what kind of character Portia was meant to be. The movie solves this problem by casting Portia played by Cicely Tyson as a kind articulate Negro militant who expresses her rebellion by becoming a maid. Not very likely. It is that a militant what about her as militant? Yeah. It is that the required changes, like who cuts up whom and under what circumstances, and sidestepping or accommodating modern sensibilities, cause the plot and motivations to fall apart. At almost every dramatic moment, the story becomes frail in its sense. And so woke Hollywood ruined this good book. Is that what I'm hearing? Variety <laughs> um, in 1968 said, translating to the screen the delicate if spe- uh, specious uh, tragedy of Carson McCullough's first novel was clearly not an easy matter, nor an entirely successful one. Either The Heart is a Lonely Hunter emerges as a fragmented episodic melodrama with uneven dramatic impact and formula pacing. So on that note, I, just, I had to read the New York Times review because I was just like, whoa. <laughs> this is a lot. <laughs> um, what did uh, you just can't say anything? No, nah, I was just like, I was just like, this seems like it has nothing to do with the. This seems like a you thing. This doesn't have anything to do with the movie. Um, what did y'all? What did y'all make of the heart as a lonely hunter? <laughs> Michael, do you want to go or you want me to? I watched this, not really knowing very much about it. I knew that this existed as a book. Um, and I knew who Alan Arkin was, and that was about it. Um, going, I knew who Cicely Tyson was as well. Um, that was about it going into this. And as I watched it, this growing sense as each scene unfolded of just just this growing feeling of what am I watching? Like it just started <laughs> dawning on me. And I, asked I never that answered question that question by the end of the movie. Uh, yeah, every scene. <laughs> One, that that variety review I think uh, describes it fairly well, which is that like it's like a melodrama that's episodic, and so it like is really uneven and doesn't fit together that well. Um, but also like the what did they say the drama was de- or the tragedy was delicate but specious or something like that, and I I also agree with that. Like the tragedy erupts in maybe the final ten minutes of the movie in what I felt to be like nonsensical way. Like I didn't connect, I couldn't connect the dots. Um, and I, I don't know if there's, there's like a maybe more naturalistic version of this movie that is just kind of like hanging out with these people who are all kind of like lonely and like are searching, searching for human connection and struggling to find it. And then there's maybe the more like kind of heightened, like full on like melodrama sort of thing where, you know, 
different, like the structure of society leads people to be alienated and eventually harmed. Um, and those two are like coexisting in the movie, but not given enough development on either end for either mode to really work. And it just, I didn't know what I was supposed to get out of this. And Alan Arkin's character, well, just like the whole movie in general, when it's, it's approached to disability, like, I don't really get it. Like, is this just like the mere presence of someone who is like without hearing is enough to like make people question their humanity or something like there's like it supposed feels to be something like profound. the uh, the and like an anti-ableist version of the magical negro trope or something yeah yeah like he just comes around and he's like impossibly kind and pure and everyone else has to like kind of question like wow he's changed me he's changed my soul and i didn't i didn't really understand how that was like he's not even that magical. Like right. he he doesn't <laughs> he does nothing do for things these people that are for the most part. He doesn't do anything for them. Yeah. He simply exists. He, he buys a record a house. for this girl. He buys a record. He boards at a house, but he doesn't really do anything. He simply is long suffering. He translates like he, for the doctor at one point. He does translate for the doctor. Yeah, I mean, it's not that he doesn't do nice things, but he doesn't do things that are sufficiently nice that it would disrupt the social fabric of, <laughs> of their town. No, I completely agree. Yeah, like it doesn't feel like this character even really has a story. He just kind of is in these scenes with all of these other characters who aren't particularly connected to each other. Which is maybe like on paper interesting because like a lot of the characters talk about him like he's not there or will like turn their heads away from him so he can't they can't he can't read his lips or whatever so he's like functionally an observer in his own life to a certain extent because people he doesn't act like he doesn't have there. as the as the kids say main character energy <laughs> well no and that's kind of like a function of how society treats his disability and like i can see like there's maybe a interesting thing i'm like potentially out of it and maybe the book does something interesting with it but as a character himself he he's not present enough to to make me feel anything other than he is a, not the main character man um yeah so one of the person who um suggested we do this movie um said that it's sh- the book should be taught in high schools instead of to kill a mockingbird and we have a whole episode way back where we talk about to kill a mockingbird a lot um the the movie is uh did you wonder who fired the gun i think is what that movie is called um, so, like, I have talked way too long in this podcast about To Kill a Mockingbird already, but long story short, there are things that are good about To Kill a Mockingbird, and there are things that are bad about To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, and the, one of the things that is good about it that I could imagine being good about this book is the sort of fragmented, small town, uh, like, non story storytelling. Um, where in, in that book, in To Kill Mockingbird, we're like getting these snippets of memories from uh, this kid's life. Um, and it's like this very authentic, lived in experience of like what it's like to live in this small southern town, right? I could see a version of that here, and maybe the book is that. I'm not sure. Um, but the movie just feel, felt so much like a bad soap opera to me like it never it never really uh, felt particularly lived in because all these characters feel like such flat um like ideas i guess Uh, and the ideas are so strange like um a a rebellious girl who is rebellious because she's into classical music or um a 
a black a reverse racist a reverse racist <laughs> black doctor who refuses to treat white patients. Like I when I when I get to the scene where it's introducing me to the reverse racist doctor, that's when I ask myself the question that Michael's asking, what am I watching right now? Like I understand why Selma didn't find this movie threatening because they were they were happy it didn't include any sort of civil rights struggle because it does not include any sort of civil rights struggle, but it kind of like almost looks like or gestures as though it is doing that. Um, it's like a, it's like, like a Chappelle show sketch or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, but like even that, like there's maybe like in theory, something interesting that could have been drawn out of that. Like perhaps like the society is so like, uh, you know, such like a, a society that has apartheid to such an extent that like the white or the black doctor knows that like, any complicity with like white people is going to be bad for like the the black community and so he refused like if, if it were something like that if he were truly like a militant or like a black nationalist or that sort of thing that was like actually in conversation with like the things that were going on that would be interesting and that could be in the movie if you added some scenes but this or is something a fake like that person but it's who simply not exist. there like the, a All white writer is, made this person up right yeah <laughs> Well, I know this white person who won't treat black people, so there's probably some and black people who do I that too. I feel like the uh, depiction of disability is probably along the same lines. I mean, I guess I don't know that much about uh, people who have this condition, um, so I can't say that like there's there's nothing that is relatable about this. But it it felt very alienating and distancing from those characters to me. Um, I had the epiphany while watching it that like it's kind of wild that we don't just as a as a rule always subtitle sign language like to not know what people who are speaking sign language to each other are saying um is to kind of like suggest that they don't have real language like they're not actually communicating with each other in the same way that you know two characters speaking a foreign language are um and like I don't feel like I get a sense of either of these guys' characters because I don't know the words they're exchanging um, with one another. Like I'm having to kind of guess, and they're not like because ASL is what it is. Like it is it is not something that you can just guess most of the time, right? Um, like it is a complicated, um, unique language, um, and so neither of these characters um, like that we meet at the beginning. Um, feel like they're being painted with any humanity to me, really. Um, especially the friend who it felt like it was um, almost, um, I don't know, mocking a little bit. Uh, I couldn't quite tell. The friend, the, out, out of all of the characters, the friend gets like zero agency. You know, you get the, you get the scene with him uh, breaking into the bakery at the beginning. That's kind of the catalyst to where they get to the situation, you know, the whole town where they've moved and all that kind of stuff. But after that, once once they've moved, the friend's like deeply sidelined other than like maybe yeah, two scenes. Yeah, you forget that the movie is about that. Um, or and then or he's the gone. movie presented itself as being yeah. about that before it just kind of shifted to something else. This is another reason I felt like it. it's a bad soap opera. Like it just kind of keeps switching plot lines. It is spinning so many plates that you forget which plates you started spinning. Um, and not in like a you know, cool interconnected mosaic of life sort of way. It's just like, oh yeah, that plot line. I guess we're back here. 
One yeah, of the it's things... not like it's okay. not like they connect very well. You know, even at the very end, the the doctor and the the teenager like kind of connect for a second. It's more just like <laughs> he was cool, huh? And they were like, yeah. And so All right. like, once I got See to ya. about the seventy five percent mark of this movie, I was watching it with somebody, and they they asked how are they going to finish this movie? Like, how is this movie possibly going to wrap up? And then, and the answer is out of nowhere, the main character committed suicide. Um, I remember. (laughs) Yeah. And his friend has died as well, which I will say that, like, I had a little bit of a different reaction at the beginning of the movie because a lot of the beginning of the movie, like a good portion of like before the uh, friend is committed, um, is that kind of unsubtitled sign language. And for a minute, like for a minute, maybe like the first 10 minutes of the movie or something, I thought I was watching a movie that was going to be much bolder and more interesting than it ended up being because of how little it holds your hand through a lot of that stuff. Like there's no dialogue for maybe five minutes of this movie. Um, And not like no spoken dialogue. But even before that, a lot of it is like, you're just seeing this guy break into this bakery. And like, there's, it kind of just throws you into it. Um, I ended up having to watch this on YouTube um, because the library DVD I got was broken. Um, and when I first started it, I was wondering, like, is this actually the beginning of the movie? Uh, because I wasn't sure if, like, there had been just some sort of, like, cheap No, it does just start. like that. It's weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> it does just start. And, like, for a second, like, I was looking at, like, okay, 1968, is this some kind of, like, bold, like, one flew over the cuckoo's nest sort of thing where they're going to like do this kind of like social parable, but also like have this kind of like new Hollywood, like foreign film inflected like style to it. And the answer is no, but like for a minute I was like, maybe this is like trying to do something interesting because it is like a striking and bold decision to, for a movie that otherwise is not very high minded to open with such like, like such deep in media rests like such deep, like we're not going to give you exposition about these characters in a conventional way. There's I don't know. Also, it was a very weird way to open the movie. There's a very strange, like superimposition shot at the beginning where we get this close up on Mr. Singer's eyes, um, cast over the skyline of this town, and the movie never is working in that sort of cinematic mode again. Nor does that shot seem to mean anything cinematically, like. This, I I don't feel like that we are really like probing the heart of this town in this movie, um, nor am I like getting that much of this character's interiority throughout. Um, it just kind of settles into this like very boring to look at like beige um, televisual movie. Yeah, it is very boring on a stylistic level, except for like a handful of those like little flourishes. I don't know. I. I didn't, this movie wasn't like offensive to me, but I could not find a single thing to enjoy about it, to be honest. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's just kind of <laughs> dull. Um, and like, doesn't really have that much to say about the issues that it is touching. Um, I am curious if, I mean, this novel was a bestseller. And I mean, surely not everyone who saw the movie read the novel, you know, because that's not how those things work. But like, I am curious if, like, having read the novel maybe gives more insight into at least what the movie was going for. Because as it is, like, I'm not sure what the movie was going for in terms of theme, in terms of, like, how we're supposed to be connected to these characters. 
but if I knew like a, a fuller version of the story and I could kind of like view this in the same way that like people watch the Harry Potter movies, which are not really complete stories, but are like reasonable, like kind of approximations of the story beats of the book that you might be used to. Like, I wonder if the movie even at all works on that level. I'm not sure because I've not read it. I kind of want to, even though I, it's supposed I, to be good. <laughs> Yeah, I I feel like they probably could have expanded on some of you know, it just like we're talking about it just is so feels so like half baked in a lot of these um, a lot of these storylines a lot of these moments that I'm just kind of like, um, you know what's like like it doesn't really lead to much and I'm wondering if you know in the format of a book where you're allowed you know you're able to like really carve out more time to really kind of get into the relationships and what he's bringing to them and things like that i wonder if that makes it a much more fulfilling experience than this which yeah it just feels like he kind of has these these moments with some folks and then literally out of nowhere for the last 10 minutes he he just kills himself can we talk about the ending of the movie because like there are like there's like an element where i'm not sure what dots i'm supposed to be connecting there um so like are we ever given a reason for why his friend dies like or is it just like oh he was in an institution he probably wasn't doing too well he died like does the movie ever like i don't remember i mean i'm trying to think uh i don't remember ever there have been a moment especially like when he's when he's dying like them going this is what he's dying from yeah it's just just so like the the tragedy like it's literally a cut from the nurse goes, the doctor should, you need to talk to the doctor to him in the graveyard. And you're just yeah. like, yeah. <laughs> and then from there, it's like, like one of the next scenes is I think like, it's you just hear a gunshot going off and then there's his tombstone there. Well, but then there's also another thing where I wasn't quite sure if I missed something or if I was supposed to be connecting dots. Like what happens with the girl, like the she daughter, has like I she has sex. It. And I thought for sure she's just bummed about with that, her getting like, pregnant or something, and it being right. Yeah, she I doesn't really have a conclusion like to her I, arc. Is she just yeah loss of innocence or whatever? Is that what we're supposed to well, be getting then, from it? We haven't even mentioned this. What's the deal with the the dad in the wheelchair? Yeah, that, it seems <laughs> to be seeding that, that like the dad. Like it seems important. It seems important, but well, they never yeah, talk I mean, about it. There's a moment where um, the girl is just like being really hateful about Mr. Singer. Um, and she uses the word cripple and the dad slaps her. And it seems like there's going to be an arc there where like she has these, you know, misguided ideals, ideas about people with disabilities and her dad recently got a disability and he's going to like open her eyes or whatever. But like, there's nothing. It's just not in well, there. Well, the- well, there's that, and then there's just, like, you know, they have kind of, the mom has a speech about, like, just the financials, like, because he can't work in, like, the job he was doing, like, mom's they're not making as much money. Mom's speech is about, a bitch, and then you but die, it never really... especially if you're a girl. <laughs> yeah, and then that... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you're just like, okay. Is that what the movie is saying? Uh, I don't Life's know. A bitch I just felt die. like... Sometimes you meet some <laughs> that's real cool the people. friends we made along the way. To be honest, that's what Pinocchio <laughs> is about. 
Yeah, but Pinocchio has freaking like whales and stuff. Like, yeah. Pinocchio is cool. Like, if this movie had a talking picket, and if this movie had like puppets that reanimated after they died, and if this movie had a whale that swallowed you and then like you had to escape from it, like, I wouldn't really care as much about like, you know, do the plot points make sense? In the same way that like, Pinocchio, the Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio doesn't like 100% hang together on a script level, but I kind of don't care because it's like, oh, this is kind of interesting inherently, like all this weird stuff. But this is not interesting inherently. Nothing about this material made me like kind of sit up and be like, oh, this doesn't make sense, but I'm interested in it. I was mostly like, this doesn't make sense, but I don't care because I was kind of bored. Well, then you have like the whole altercation between Cecily Tyson's husband and her and the the white people at the fair that also leads to the Stacey Keach <laughs> oh character God, being fired. So and much. like, like we, we get all of a sudden. Yeah, and I'm like, what's the go- husband's leg has been chopped off? Uh, (laughs) he gets gangrene two scenes where we get developments on this story and one is you know he gets in this knife fight and goes to prison and the next is he has his leg cut off which one of the few like striking shots in the movie is the guy with the knife like at the camera Uh, wild it's just like a lot of stuff that you're like why (laughs) why Is it going to lead to something? It's, no. It, I mean, you could also imagine, like To Kill a Mockingbird, you could also imagine that um, having a larger story about the ways in which the criminal justice system is rigged against African Americans, um, but you don't even get those scenes, really. They're not in the movie. And, and no, like, he just gets his um, leg chopped off. The dad, or her dad, um, says he's going to do a protest or something, and he just goes to the 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 office and sits there the whole day and then goes home and i thought that that was going to lead to something and it it still doesn't um you could see that being a a making a point too about the ways in which like there are just like no avenues towards change for somebody in that situation um institutionally um but again, the movie doesn't really make that point. Um, it's you just kind of see these like half-written scenes. Yeah, I think it's worth like circling back around to that New York Times review that was like this movie is too PC or something like that. Uh, and like the wild thing is, this was this was nineteen sixty eight, like the height of like kind of countercultural uprising along the lines of like race and class and like all that sort of stuff. And you're telling me that, like, this movie was too embroiled in its own politics to, to like, make an interesting statement, like, when that was going on in the culture? Like, that can't be the case. Like, this, like, this was, like, probably, like, until maybe the, the you know, last few years with, like, Black Lives Matter and stuff, like, 1968 is, like, the height of, like, racial consciousness in, like, as a mainstream movement in America. Yeah. This is when, like, Night of the Living Dead came out, In the Heat of the Night came out. Yeah, I mean, this uh, the is, Race like, in the when... Sun movie came out. And, like, even, looks like, more broadly, just, like, politically, like, this is, like, the, like, culmination of, like, like, a kind of black radicalism, right? Like, so, like, Black Panthers and, like, all the, uh, all the, um, like, riot, riots and uprisings, uh, like, Detroit and, and, like, Watts and stuff are, like, have happened or are currently happening, like, 
there's no way that someone who is interested in saying something about these issues couldn't find something to say about these issues. Like it just, I just, I just, I just realized there's also, so like the beginning of the movie, the, the friend of the Alan Arkin character breaks into this bakery, gets arrested and like, they like gets out. I mean, they send him to uh, an institution afterwards, but he pretty much, he gets out and then the 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 husband of Cicely Tyson gets arrested. He doesn't get out. He gets his leg chopped off. We do see um, him again. We don't see him again. We see him in the barber shop. Do we see him again? That's a real weird scene too. <laughs> Every scene is a weird scene, but it's got an interesting weird scene. I don't have a a good memory of like how they all fit together because it is like we're just so rapidly shifting from from plot line to plot line. Um, it feels nonsensical in my memory. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember what happened. A lot of it, I just remember like the the pieces and and then like that guy, like he's drunk and oh that whole Alan character. Arkin's... They like introduce a what seems to be a central character like thirty minutes or so into the movie. He's gonna be his and first then 30 friend. Minutes or so later, he's out. He just leaves. Also, <laughs> he's like, like, I'll go get another job. There's an amazing line <laughs> where he's just like, "Oh, you're deaf? I thought you were just a good listener or something like that." Like, geez, like. There's like something clumsy happening about like social outcasts like finding each other or something, but then they drop it. Like again, like they don't do anything with it. I was I was laughing really hard about his whole storyline because it reminded me of the storyline in Bob's Burgers when the guy is like a ex convict and then he gets a job and goes yeah. straight by working at the Wonder Wharf at the Ferris wheel. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, it's like the same thing. It's like <laughs> it's like Mickey in Bob's Except Burgers. In Bob's Burgers, like the the, the unfortunately the Mickey are all like in a gang or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, Bob's Burgers, Mickey's played yeah. by Bill Hader. It's way more <laughs> entertaining. Where were you in 1968? So. What, what do you guys think of Alan Arkin's performance <laughs> in this? I don't think it's bad. I also no, don't good. think it doesn't give the character as much interiority as it needs to fully flesh him out into something that, you know, we've talked about, like, this character doesn't really feel like it's all there. Like, the writing is not giving him that and I don't know that it's Alan Arkin's fault that he can't like conjure a character out of nothing. Yeah, but I mean, he, he has so little to do. He uh, can't. And, and I, yeah. I wonder also if the script is like telling him to like reel it back and be as restrained as possible. That does seem like, for whatever we can say about the character, that does seem to be the character. Um, he did. Um, he was nominated for a for an Oscar um, that year. For who the did role. he lose to? Uh, Cliff Robertson and I Charlie. Know who that is, and I'm not seeing Charlie. And uh, and Sandra Locke was um, nominated for actress in a supporting role, but she lost to Ruth Gordon in Rosemary's yeah, Baby, which checks out. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I I would I would love to hear. I'm struggling the, to come up with things to say about this. I would love to hear the defense of this movie. Uh, this is. Not to not to get us not to get us sidetracked, but best picture this year is oh Oliver. Oh my gosh! They also nominate f- 
They also nominate Funny Girl. Mind you, this is the the year that Rosemary's Baby comes out and 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh my God. <laughs> I don't mind Oliver, but it is hilarious. And they gave it to it fucking Oliver. That, uh, I don't know. I want to hear the defense of this movie. Like, given that we were, you know, a, a patron asked us to talk about it, like, I mean, maybe it was a troll, but it doesn't sound like it was a troll. I don't think it was a troll. Right? Like it, I apologize it if sounds I like offended a sin- the sensibilities of this person who sincerely loves this movie. But I, I, I sincerely would like to hear, like, in more detail, what is the the argument in in this movie's favor? Because I'm, it, it's it sounds like please, a good writing. Please do. I, um, I do want to hear about this because it's not a movie that, if I weren't talking about this on this podcast, I would have already forgotten about it. You know, it's not a movie that is interestingly bad. It simply is like a just a wafer wafer of a movie that just has dissolved in my brain. Um, <laughs> and I don't I, I, I'm struggling to. A wafer of a movie that is dissolved <laughs> in my brain. That's like, no criticism. <laughs> Uh, oh, yeah. Zach, I, you Put did get on the me, DVD. You did get me sidetracked for the 2001 A Space Odyssey thing. 2001 wasn't even nominated for Best Picture. No, uh, I think it was, it was special best director, but Kubrick did it. not win. Yeah, <laughs> but not picture. Fucking Oliver, man. Um, I I saw somebody on Letterboxd say they couldn't understand the Academy's um, love for Alan Arkin in this movie, except, um, you know, by just, you know, remembering that this is, like, the kind of performance the Academy likes to award. Um, But he doesn't get the award. He doesn't get the award. I mean, it's reminiscent of that scene that I'm not going to quote from Tropic Thunder, but, like, that, like, comes to mind, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Like... But like okay. this does this feel like an Oscar bait movie from a year gone by. Um that like uh, is is just kind of unmemorable Thunder. like so many Oscar winners now like will be um in 10 20 years. Yeah, I mean maybe this was like the Danish girl of 1968. Like was <laughs> yeah, it like is, novel? Yeah. Like was was the pure <laughs> representation of having a a person who's not like a a uh you know able-bodied person like being you know what i'm saying saying like <laughs> but that's, that's like fantastic. i want to put that yeah. on letterbox now on my review is the danish girl of 1968 <laughs> oh my god what a burn but i mean like those movies are have conversations about them because of the issues that they bring i don't even know if the plots of the movies are engaging i haven't seen the danish girl but the danish girl was exclusively talked about because of trans representation or bad trans representation right and like is that true of this movie where the mere representation of a deaf person that is the reason why this was interesting for people or maybe not interesting if if it was bad you know disability representation like i don't know like I feel so far removed from that moment. Like I, I don't even, this, this was like a commercially successful movie, right? Uh, at least moderately. So it made a million dollars off of a, what were we saying? Like a $200,000 budget. I don't know. Well, I mean, at, at that time, none of these actors are like, like this is Alan Arkin's first like major film role. Um, Stacy Keach, this was his first movie ever. Sandra Locke, her first movie ever. 
So like, it, it's not like it was a super expensive movie. Yeah, that's, that's, I, I kind of want to see the version. I kind of want to see the version of this that included Montgomery Clift, Zero Mostel, and was directed by Sidney Lumet. That's yeah, for real. Insane. There's a lot of like alternate universe versions of this movie, or like the the low budget like indie film that the person was going to make. I want to point something out while we're talking about awards. This is apparently nominated for uh, AFI's uh, 100 best film scores list. It did not make it, but I could not tell you what the film score was. What was the film score? No, I I was surprised. I was surprised to see that uh, James Wong, James Wong Howell was the cinematographer. Yeah. I, I would not have, not that not that right. Anything I was about to say out, really. there's nothing uh, that stood out about the cinematography that made me think I'm interested in who this cinematographer is, but yeah, that's a big name for this. <laughs> yeah, I was just like, damn. All right. Um, I don't know. It was it was a movie that went through my eyeballs for. Listeners, two doesn't hours this make you want to give us money to roast a movie of your choice? Is this the second? How many page, patron picks have we? There's like a uh, Nomeo and Juliet. Nomeo and Juliet was one. A big old like we were just dunking at it the whole time. I feel like we've done a similar thing with this. Perhaps movie. the worst movie we've well, covered on the, the last show. Movie honestly, he... Nomeo and Juliet. Nomeo and Juliet. <laughs> well, the last movie that he suggested for Patreon was um, that was good. Best in show. Yeah. yeah. So show. you know like we were we were positive on that one. We can't always be giving you the good. We can't be always giving you the aces, um, but we got an interesting one for for next week. You know, so, you, can you say, or is it a secret? I want to know. No, I can say. I was going to say like it until the, the end. But, you know. Yeah. You want to do it right Wait now? On, Zach. All right. Oh, All right. Chad. So Chad Newsom, friend of the pod, uh, has to, is asked us to watch Blast of Silence which he says is a Christmas themed noir. I've not heard of this movie. No, it's, but it looks like it's in uh, in the Criterion Collection. Um, yeah. Seems kind of... I, I like the, uh, the log line which is a hitman comes to New York to kill a gangster and gets the gun from a big guy with a beard. <laughs> Those big men with beards you gotta watch out. You gotta be careful. I'm gonna see if Seth wants to be on this one. This seems like a Seth movie. Um. All right. Any any final thoughts on the heart is a lonely hunter? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> no. All right. Uh, well, that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on uh, Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary, on Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary, and on letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary, where we post all the movies that we talked about in this episode. If you would like to support the show so we can roast your movie, um, <laughs> head to patreon.com slash cinematary. I mean, if you just give us a dollar, it doesn't matter. Like, just give us a dollar, and, we'll, you, and we'll, we'll talk about a movie. That's what you know happened you with Nobio journalistic integrity as film critics we're gonna give it to you straight right we're not pandering to big money interests here (laughs) big ron we're gonna look you dead in the eye call your movie the danish girl in 1968 and then move on with our lives 
Um, thank you, thank you to our patrons to for who for for whatever reason support us. Cam, Chad Newsom, Candace Sisson, Ron Hayes, Teresa Marthlothi, Titus Arthur, and Tyler Chandler. Thank you so much for your patronage. And like I said, next week, 1961's Blast of Silence, um, which sounds like it could be really entertaining or just something. I hope it's entertaining. We need a little boost. Um, but after that week, we'll be doing our best of the year, which I feel like is probably, judging from the conversation we had today, will probably include the Fablemans. Fablemans number one question Old mark? again, number one. Ooh, when is the new M. Night Shyamalan movie coming out? It's it's in January. Oh, it's I was really hoping it was going to come in before the end of the year. <laughs> if Reed swooped in and put it as his number one. I was going to say... It's, <laughs> Yeah, Reed's gonna just go ahead and Knock boost that one up again. Door, number one. The jerk. Uh, all right. Until Bye. next week. Thank y'all for listening.